Well, would you take the Word of God with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 5. This will be uh, the last message from the book of Acts that I will preach, and some of you are probably saying, finally, <laughs> this is over. When I began uh, preaching through the book of Acts a few years back, uh, I did so with uh, the mindset that as a church in the 21st century, that we would get to know, get acquainted, get reacquainted with the churches of the first century, and to maybe ask ourselves, where is it that we have gone wrong? And I emphasize we as this church. You know, we can uh, spend much time being critical about every other church and all that's going wrong in the world. But ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, ask the Lord about us. How are we doing? And truly, that's what we have to be concerned about. We can't change other churches. We really can't change the world except apart from evangelizing the world, uh, helping them find their answer in Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, uh, how are we doing? And I um, put forth a scenario before you last week that as we see the book of Acts is God writing down the history of the first century church in Jerusalem and then subsequently to that these first century churches and God is writing about those churches and how they evangelized who was involved in evangelizing and then we have to ask ourselves this compelling question if God were to be writing about First Aid Baptist Church, what would he write about our church? And as he writes about First Aid Baptist Church, can he write the same things that are written about the churches in the first century that he would write about First Aid Baptist Church in the 21st century? And so I hope that uh, this has stirred in our hearts and in our minds things that perhaps nothing is, I didn't teach anything new, there's nothing spectacular it's really basic but often we go astray in the basic areas and uh, if you remember in the last few weeks I just uh, put forth some lessons in summary some lessons we've learned from the churches in Acts and I'd like to bring your attention once more to Acts chapter 5 and verse 42 here this is a throughout the book of Acts you find record of events that happened for example early on the day of Pentecost Peter preaches, 3,000 souls were saved. You find their first uh, persecution, their incarceration in Acts chapter 4. After the healing of the lame man, uh, Peter and John were taken captive, appeared before the Sanhedrin council. They were threatened and they were told that they could not preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. Uh, you find those individual stories all throughout the Bible, but uh, all throughout the book of Acts, but every once in a while you'll have a summary statement about what happened during that period of time. And one of those is Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And so here is uh, the spirit of the book of Acts. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They ceased not, <laughs> let's think about those words, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the spirit of the 
first century churches. And uh, my prayer as we think about those verses is that God would see the same thing going on at First Day Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for the instruction, the guidance, the examples that we have in the book of Acts that help us, challenge us, and uh, cause us to ask some important questions about ourselves and about this church. Uh, So Lord, we seek to do your will. We seek to honor and glorify your name. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd use this last message from the book of Acts to uh, think about ourselves and how we can be better, how we can do more for you. And help us to see specifically this morning what are the potential pitfalls that can get in the way of the church being what the church ought to be. And so we ask for help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've asked uh, two questions uh, in the last two weeks. The first one was, what are the general takeaways from the book of Acts? Uh, Why is really this record given to us? And some of the things that we learn is, the first thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ left the responsibility of world evangelism to those who believed on him. Uh, From the very first chapter, he gave them a clear, very clear command to begin at Jerusalem to go on to Judea, Samaria, south and north of Jerusalem, and then from there to go to the ends of the earth and to preach the gospel to every creature. And God gave that responsibility to those who believed on Him, to those who are part of the church. We also noted that the work of evangelism was accomplished by the power of the Holy Ghost and at the direction of the Holy Ghost. And specifically pointed out that the result of Holy Ghost empowerment is threefold in the book of Acts. There is boldness to preach the gospel. There is unity among the believers in the commitment to preach the gospel. And there is also clarity in direction. You know, God, the Bible says, is not the author of confusion. I think we've complicated church a little bit. Maybe it's more simple than we think of the church and what the church ought to be. And lastly, we mentioned that the churches did not shrink in the face of opposition, in the face of physical harm, in the face of public censorship, and in the face of persecution. The church did not shrink. Instead, we find that the church flourished. It flourished. And so those are some of the general takeaways that we've taken from the book of Acts. But then we asked another pointed question, and that is, what do we learn from the people in Acts who were God used to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I made several points, the first of which was that the work of evangelism was accomplished by common people. (laughs) That's what we see through the book of Acts. Nobody extraordinary in the sense uh, uh, six of the disciples were fishermen. That's one of the most basic ways to earn an income at that time. Not wealthy men, common men. And God used common people to turn the world upside down. And so, by the way, we're in good company today. And we also noted that the work of evangelism was not limited to the apostles. 
all the believers were involved in some capacity in the work of evangelism. Uh, if we would understand that, I think we would be helped by it because we should not expect just the pastor or maybe a deacon in the church, a teacher in the church to do the work of evangelism because I am not capable of speaking to the people that you interact with on a daily basis. And you have opportunities that I will never have and I have opportunities that you will never have. And, and we have to understand that the work of evangelism is to be undertaken by all the believers. And we saw that after the persecution of Stephen when he was stoned to death. It did not silence the church. The believers in Jerusalem were scattered abroad, except the apostles. They remained in Jerusalem, but all the believers were scattered in Judea and Samaria. And the Bible says, and they preached the gospel everywhere. And wherever they were, wherever God gave them opportunity, they spoke of the gospel. And that's something that we can all be involved in. And think about how much quicker the gospel can propagate with a crowd, let's say, of 60 to 70 people. that all speak to one person every week as the Lord allows and gives opportunity. That's 70 gospel witnesses a week. Instead of me taking upon myself to speak with 70 people a week, that, that's a, much, uh, a task that's out of hand, that's, that's too great. And so uh, God wants to multiply. Let me put a plug in for Friend Day. <laughs> friend Day is coming up in a couple of weeks. And so find a friend. Bring somebody to church. And... Uh, you say, I don't have friends. Then show yourself friendly and go find, uh, go find a friend. But then we also noted that the work of evangelism is both promoted and maintained by the overlooked ministry of encouragement. That's something we find in the book of Acts. Time and time again when believers were discouraged or believers were imprisoned, you had believers that prayed for them, believers that encouraged them, believers that uh, nourished the Apostle Paul, believers that uh, 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 invited the Apostle Paul to be housed in their home. And you find just a, a great ministry of encouragement. And by the way, we need encouragement in the world. If you uh, spend enough time in the world and among people and you listen to the news a little too much, uh, you might become depressed and discouraged. And so we need each other to encourage each other to continue to serve God. And we also noted that the work of evangelism was carried by people who were willing to sacrifice. Uh, we know that uh, the greatest sacrifice was given to us in chapter 8 or chapter 7 when Stephen preached before the Sanhedrin council and he was stoned to death. And you find many martyrs in the book of Acts, and church history teaches us that those who proclaim the gospel have been willing, willing to give, give their lives. And we don't face today, at least today, not in this country, in other countries they do, but in this country we don't face the peril of death by evangelizing. We do not. Maybe some unkindness every once in a while, rejection every once in a while, but not the type of peril that they face in the first century. But yet they were quite intense, quite persistent, quite engaged and zealous about preaching the gospel to every creature. So those are the things that we ask. But I want to ask one more question. The last message for the book of Acts is, what do we learn about the opposition that comes against the churches? You see, the book of Acts really has showed us that there are two battlefronts that the churches will always face. There is the battlefront that comes from without the church, 
And there is the battlefront that comes from within the church. You know, we've asked the question as we study through the book of Acts, and often we've asked this question, why is this in the book of Acts? The book of Acts is not everything that happened in those first century churches, but it is everything that God wants us to know happened. That's what the book of Acts is. And so when we look at the book of Acts, we've seen that there is a record uh, very clearly laid out of the enemy that the church has faced outside the church, but there's also some enemies, some point of contention that the church faced from within the church. And those battles have not changed since that time till today. As I mentioned, we, I don't want to relate, and I think we have to be careful when we think, oh, we're, we're persecuted today. I, I would be really careful with that, at least not to the degree that they were persecuted then. Uh, certainly, I know missionaries to this day, some that we support, that are in countries that are completely closed, and that if they were ever found out that they were preaching the gospel, they would be imprisoned. Now, that's persecution, certainly. Not the degree that we face persecution, but certainly we still face opposition. You see, Satan's goal, let's remember what the book of Acts is about. It is about a historical record about the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we today, in the 21st century, are still beneficiaries of what happened in the first century. And we have to recognize that the generations to come are going to be dependent on the work that we engage in today. Satan's goal is one thing, to silence the church. You see, silence is the goal because it is the message of the church that brings life and purpose. And so if Satan can just silence the church, that the church can just become some other entity, some other organization that is silent, the devil will be satisfied with that. You see, the silence, to silence the church, Satan has used various ways to accomplish this goal. Again, there's two ways, two fronts, two silencers, and we see this account in the book of Acts. There is the potential from outside, the enemy from with, uh, without the church to silence the church. We see that attempt all throughout the book of Acts to silence the church from the outside. But then you see an enemy also from within the church that can cause the church to basically self-corrupt where it can become silent or we might say become corrupted or distracted and as a result ineffective in the world. I want to deal first with the opposition that the churches faces from without. When we look throughout the book of Acts we see uh, no doubt opposition. We, we see a, uh, a great opposition to the gospel, we might call it unbelief. That, that, that's what it is. We have this summary statement appearing through the book of Acts again and again. The Bible says, some believed and many believed not. Or many believed and some did not believe. And you find that wherever they went, uh, and by the way, the majority of the places where they went re were rejectors of the gospel. You know, we think today of the 21st century and people today say, well, we are in the 21st century. You see, we are a now an advanced civilization. And the reason why there is unbelief today is because we're modern. 
Because now we know how to think and we got technology and we got things that they didn't have then. And there is this idea today being propagated that unbelief and uh, secularism and rejection of the gospel is a, is a modern idea. But it's as old as the gospel. Those who have rejected the gospel, uh, this is not something new to the 20th century or to the 19th and 18th century. It's something that's always been around. It's something that has always been true. And the enemies from without the church are really fourfold. We might say that the religious world, the religious world at that time, was agitated by the gospel. The religious world. If you remember when the gospel comes in, the gospel comes in in the midst of a nation that is very religious. Uh, they're not now, certainly there are, uh, you could say that the Sadducees are the part of Judea Judaism that was secularized. Uh, and certainly there was that influence, but really the, the main opposition, those who really stood against the gospel were the religious. They, they weren't necessarily, although there was pagan opposition, there was secular opposition. That is not where the main opposition of the church came. It came from the religious world. Uh, and uh, today when we think about the 21st century, there is still today a lot of religion, isn't there? There's a whole lot of religion. John Lennox was asked, he's a mathematician who... Um, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was asked the question when he was interviewed about, well, as a scientist, you know, how do you tell which religion to choose? And his reply was very simple. He says, well, it's based on evidence. Now, that might shock you now, but, but he reasoned and he goes on to say, uh, if you take uh, the main monotheistic religions today, you say you have the maybe those within the Muslim world and those within the Jewish world and those within Christendom. Uh, if we uh, have those three groups, you could see that the Muslims, they, they believe Jesus existed. They believe he was a prophet. But they don't believe he died and he rose from the dead. The Jews believe Jesus lived. They believe he died, but they don't believe he rose from the dead. But the Christians, now the Christians, they believe that Jesus lived, that He died on the cross, but they believe that He was raised from the dead. And He says, I believe in Jesus Christ because of the evidence. Because of the evidence. And so the Jews, by the way, rejected Christ. And, and I say, how much evidence did you need? They saw Him raise Lazarus from the dead. They, they saw Him feed a multitude of people. Uh, yet they were unconvinced. Uh, they opposed the gospel because the gospel did this. The gospel told them who were religious, who thought that they were all right with God. The gospel told them that they were sinners and that they were under the condemnation of God and that they needed to believe on Jesus Christ in order that their sins might be forgiven and that they might have eternal life. And they rejected that message. By the way, their rejection was, is laid out throughout the book of Acts. You find in chapter 4, they incarcerated Peter and John. They uh, put them in bonds. They had them testify. They criticized them. They said, these are unlearned and ignorant men. They haven't been educated like we have. They threatened them. They told them, you cannot teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. And you remember the reply. They say, we cannot but speak <laughs> the things which we have seen and heard. And they said, uh, you, you judge, 
is should we obey God or should we obey man? Well, their reply, if they were religious, would be, well, you have to obey God, but they didn't want to say that. Everywhere they went, even when they went into Asia Minor and then into Macedonia and Achaia, the main opposition always came from the religious. From the religious. Now, I know that today there is a, um, a great push uh, within religions to uh, have this idea of unification. Let's just all get along. But what happens if you're all going to get along with all the different religions that teach different things is you then have to compromise on the truth. And we simply cannot compromise on the truth. Those who reject that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, uh, we say to them that they are wrong. They are teaching false doctrine, that they don't believe the truth of God. And so we cannot associate with those who do not believe the truth from the Word of God. And so the religious world was agitated by the gospel. And today, by the way, the religious world is still agitated by the gospel. One of the main questions I asked, and by the way, most, the majority of people in this area, although it's a very secular county, most people go to have some form of religion or go to some type of church. And when you speak to them, uh, they'll often uh, be fine about talking about religion, but as soon as you talk about uh, sin and eternal life and Jesus Christ, then they begin to get uncomfortable, and often they, they, they just shut the door and they don't want to hear anymore. You see, the religious world is agitated by the gospel. Not only was the religious world agitated by the gospel, by the way, they wanted to silence. That's what they tried to do. Don't teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. How about you just join us? By the way, the Sanhedrin council was fine with the miracles of Peter and John. They were fine with the miracles. They just weren't fine with Jesus Christ. See, uh, all the churches can meet together if, if we all kind of, we all, you know, do, let's just do good together. Well, that sounds nice. But if you leave Jesus Christ out, then you have destroyed the vitality and the life of the church. It's found in Jesus Christ. So we cannot but speak His name. Often you go to those organizations, and when I first came here, I was invited to a fellowship of pastors in the area. And as much as I love other pastors in the area, I looked at the list of the churches that assembled themselves together, and there was all kinds of different stripes and groups and churches and I pray always in the name of Jesus Christ <laughs> and I cannot abide anybody else that comes to God on their own merit or through Mary or through any other capacity it's only through Christ that we have access to God so I, I cannot and say, well, well, you're, you're, you're mean. I, I don't think it's meanness. I think it's I cannot compromise on the truth. The religious world has always, always been agitated by the gospel. We also know that the secular world was agitated by the gospel. You remember when uh, Paul then he went after Asia Minor, he was directed to go to Macedonia and Achaia. And, and when he went to Philippi, remember it was mainly a Roman colony of soldiers uh, that were there and... and when uh, Paul began to preach, some of the people began to be agitated. They, they were secular. 
uh, obviously uh, strongly influenced by uh, Greek philosophy, but they were mainly secular. Uh, to them, their, the Roman Empire was their God. Caesar was their God. And, and that's who they accepted. And so when Paul began to preach in those different cities that were more modern, maybe less religious, more secular, the people also rejected that. By the way, it was in Philippi that Paul was imprisoned. They somehow convinced, convinced the secular authorities in Philippi, which was not a Jewish colony. Remember, he had to go by the river outside the city. There was apparently no synagogue in Philippi because that's where always where Paul went first. But he couldn't find a synagogue in Philippi. It was a secular city. And when he preached the gospel, the people were agitated. What do you mean, Jesus Christ? What do you mean, sin? And people would reject the message of the gospel. That's where he was in prison in Philippi. There's also the pagan world is, was agitated by the gospel. You remember several cities, there was, uh, for example, the temple of Diana. And there's various gods throughout Greek mythology. And when uh, Paul would preach to them, remember on several occasions when they had done miracles, they, they wanted to offer a sacrifice unto, and they ascribed uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas and then uh, some uh, deity because of the miracles that they had done and they would go back to their temple and offer sacrifice and remember what Paul said repeatedly he says no he says you, you, you don't we are not gods at all and they would preach unto them Jesus Christ and so the religious world the secular world the pagan world they, they are all agitated by the gospel This is God giving us an axe, what happened in the first century. And God is very careful to show us that wherever the gospel went, the people were agitated. Now, it's true, one preacher said that wherever Paul went, either one of two things happened. There was either revival or there was a riot. And that's true. By the way, wherever you go today, you could speak to missionaries, and I'm sure many of you, as we've heard testimony, they'll go to a town and there's completely rejection. But then they'll go somewhere else and there's complete acceptance and people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that's certainly a wonderful thing. But wherever the gospel goes, there is agitation. So we have to recognize today in the 21st century that the people being agitated by the gospel is not something new. It is not that men reject the gospel today because they are smarter, because they are in the 21st century, because they're more educated. No, they reject the gospel because of what Jesus said. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The reason why people reject the gospel is not because they don't like the gospel. There's nothing, by the way, there's nothing from the gospel that is repulsive. Absolutely nothing. You say, what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ became sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Amen. See, we are all sinners. We deserve eternal damnation and hell because of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God. But God in His love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for our sin debt in full. 1 Corinthians 5.21 God hath made him Christ to be sin for us. He who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's a wonderful message. But you know why the world rejects the gospel? Because of the first part. What's the first part? We're all sinners. 
And the world just doesn't like to hear that. This is the condemnation, Jesus said. That light is coming to the world. That's himself. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So when man is confronted by the idea that he is sinful, he is repulsed by it. He is a rejecter of the gospel. And he doesn't appreciate the graciousness and the mercy of God that he would send his son to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So there is the enemy from without the church. And we know by the end, that's how the book of Acts ends, doesn't it? With Paul's imprisonment. He's going to die in his bonds. That's where he's going to die. And we might say, oh, he's, he, he has been hampered. The gospel has been silenced. Oh, no, it has, been, it has not. He wrote during that time uh, the epistle to the Philippians. And he said this to them in Philippians chapter 1. I would that you should not be ignorant of this very thing that... Or I would that you should not be ignorant that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul says, Philippians, rejoice! Because my imprisonment has not silenced the gospel. It's not put the gospel aside. It's not hidden the gospel. It's promoted the gospel. He even said that because of my bonds... The brethren are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What we learn in the book of Acts is this. That opposition to the gospel only emboldened the believers. Opposition to the gospel only emboldened the believers. I find no case in the book of Acts or in all of the New Testament that those who were opposed shrivel up in a corner and became silent. I find not one example. Can't teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Sorry, we can't do that. So there's the enemy from without. Uh, now, by the way, <laughs> church history teaches us that persecution has never stopped the church. As a matter of fact, the church has always flourished under the intensity of persecution. It always has. So there's the enemy from without, but then there's the enemy from within. I think that the enemy from within is much more serious than the enemy from without. I think the enemy from within the church is much more capable of bringing a church down than the enemy from without the church. And I think church history will reveal that and make that very clear to us. Remember, the book of Acts is everything that God wants us to know about those first century churches. And within this record, those 28 chapters, God gives us an insight into what was going on at times inside the church. And these are potential enemies. Now we see that they didn't stop the church, but God lets us know. He opens the veil and He says, here's what went on within the church. And there was a potential from the church for uh, becoming uh, distracted or becoming corrupted. And uh, that might stop the work of the gospel. And here's the enemy from within. There are, let me give you a few. There are those who will deceive in the church. One of the examples that Acts gives us is Acts chapter 5. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Why would God give us that record? Why would God give us that record? The story of Ananias and Sapphira. Are there other people that gave to the church? Of course. Throughout the first century, are there other people who maybe did what Ananias and Sapphira did? Maybe looking for self-praise and 
um, deceived the church and maybe gave a gift that was all deceptive and it wasn't honest. And we look at this record and say, well, what, what's the big deal? They gave to the church. The point is that they were deceptive. Peter says they've lied to the Holy Ghost. You see, uh, selfish pursuits was their desire. Hypocrisy, deception. And notice, I believe that God just gives us this record not to say... Here is what's going to happen anytime a believer is deceptive or hypocritical. I believe God lets us know that happens so we know what He thinks about it. It's happened all throughout the centuries in the churches. But I believe God gives us Acts chapter 6 to show us what He thinks about it. Well, evidently God is not pleased with those who are Seeking within the church for selfish pursuit. By the way, the idea of the church is the opposite of selfishness. It's You have to go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You, you can't look in the church as what the church is there for you, but how you can serve through the church. And so those are... That's an enemy from within the church. A potential, by the way. Can you imagine if, if God had overlooked that? Now, by the way, the reaction to that... The reaction to that was many more people came to know Jesus Christ. Many more people believed. That's interesting. You'd think that, wow, God smote Ananias and fire in the church. Now everybody's going to leave. Nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to be interested anymore. The opposite happened. Can you imagine what God can do with a church that is filled with genuine people? who are not seeking for self-interest, but who are seeking for the glory of God. And Ananias and Sapphira were seeking for self-interest. And God says, I don't want self-interest in my church. That will kill the church. So he gives us that example. There's another example in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 6. That was Acts 5, Acts chapter 6. There are those who will murmur in the church. Now he gives us another example. Now, uh, the murmuring there, remember there was... um, um, Murmuring in the church over some of the widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. Now, that does not make valid point. That does not make murmuring right. Your murmuring is, is wrong. But you remember what the apostle says throughout all this when the murmuring happened and so well, the widows are being neglected. Here's what the apostle says. So we're going to find some men who can take care of this business so that we, we can give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what's the danger for the church? The danger is this. When people murmur, the church will become distracted from what it ought to be doing. He gives us that example. They were murmuring now. They resolved the issue. But the point is, the, the, the apostle saw, we could have become distracted. We can become engaged in other peripheral things that God does not want us to be involved in, uh, that is not, not that God does not want to be involved in, but that are not the first pursuits, the, the first works that the church is to be engaged in. And so, the church can become distracted through murmuring. Conflict, conflict in the church often will distract the church from being engaged in priorities. You know what's been the chief cause of the death of churches throughout church history it hasn't been it has not been the enemy from without it's been the enemy from within the church people murmuring and complaining about every single thing by the way and I've read books and I've heard stories 
I mean, churches split over the color of the carpet. I, I, I'm not kidding. Some of you, maybe throughout your life, you've been, uh, been in a church like that, where people get all upset over the color of the carpet and the light bulbs and, and uh, the music, and, and they just get all up in arms about those things, and we can become very distracted, can we not? By the way, there's nothing that will kill a church as much as distraction from what the church ought to be doing. There's another thing we find, and that is there are those who will promote false doctrine in the church. He gives us another example in Acts chapter 15. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had left on the missionary journey. They had come back and they had heard that there were some believers who were, used to be Pharisees from the church in Jerusalem who came up to Antioch and who were teaching the people in Antioch that they had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas says, that's not right. That's false doctrine. And so they went down to the church of Jerusalem and said, hey, what's going on? And they made it right. But can you see that potential? From the, from the very inception of the church, false doctrine was a potential to creeping in the church. Now there are other examples. I'm not going to continue for sake of time. But the point is, throughout the book of Acts, we have this record for many reasons. But one of those is, here's the enemy from without the church. And what we need as believers is, we need to encourage one another. Whether it's religious opposition, secular opposition, pagan opposition. But also we have to be very careful as a church from the enemy from within. And by the way, that, that means, you know what that means? That means me. Me looking for my self-pursuits. Me to be glorified. Me to, be, me to have the preeminence. And only Christ can have the preeminence. Murmurings, deception, hypocrisy, false doctrine. That will wither and shrivel up a church from within. That enemy is much more capable of bringing a church down than any enemy from without the church. So what must we do? Let me give you this in summary. We must be focused on our mission. We must be fervent in our praying. We must be clear about our roles. We must be firm on our doctrine. We must be forthright about our spiritual state. And we must be faithful through difficulties. That's what we find throughout the book of Acts. Let me say those again and we're done. We must be focused on our mission. We must be fervent in our praying. We must be clear about our roles. We must be firm on our doctrine. We must be forthright about our spiritual state and we must be faithful through difficulties. That's what we find in the first century. And so, would you pray with me as we end here this series in Acts that God would help us, God would help us to be a first century type of church in the 21st century. And then God would use us and be pleased with First Day Baptist Church. Let's pray.